Like we really do have the power to change the conversation on these issues. And sometimes it's really just as easy as like getting together with a couple of other people coming up with some goals and, you know, either creating a petition or writing to your elected leaders. Just those few Mm -hmm. steps Mm -hmm. can move the conversation on some of these issues a long way. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Good morning, Emma. It's Fashion Revolution Week. Yes. Hey, Mom. And yes, it is Fashion Revolution Week. If you're just tuning in here, you might be wondering what that is. Yes, um, the organization Fashion Revolution that started this movement calls this week the time when we come together as a global community to create a better fashion industry. It centers around the anniversary of the Rana Plaza factory collapse, which killed over 1,000 people and injured many more on April 24th, 2013. Yeah, and this year marks eight years since the collapse, which is crazy to imagine. I can't believe it's gone so fast. It feels like it just happened. And Fashion Revolution Week is here to remind us to focus on the interconnectedness of human rights and the rights of the environment and our responsibility and the role that we play in all of it. And our guest this week is certainly an example of one of the creative voices in the community who's been out there exploring solutions for nearly 20 years. Elizabeth Klein is a New York-based author, journalist, and expert on consumer culture, fast fashion, sustainability, and labor rights in the apparel industry. She is the author of Overdressed, The Shockingly High Cost of Cheap Fashion, which was published in 2012 and uncovered the impacts of fast fashion on society and the environment, and also pretty much laid the foundation for the modern global ethical and sustainable fashion movement. Her most recent book, The Conscious Closet, published in 2019, describes how consumers can transform the apparel industry and change the world for the better by making more informed decisions about what they wear every day. It was truly an honor to sit down with this, who I consider a thought leader in this space, Elizabeth. Um, She really, she very respectfully kind of pushed the envelope and, and made us think about so many different things, much bigger and in many different ways, kind of than I think we'd been, we'd been thinking about. Uh, I really appreciated how she highlighted this sort of paradigm that the slow fashion industry and this kind of, I'll just call it a culture, has embraced, which is, oh, well, if we just stay over here and only buy this stuff, then all of the bad things will go away, which 
is a really like fun thing to think about, but kind of as a reality as how that plays out in the bigger world, us buying the way that we want to buy. Sure. It can make a huge difference in our life, of course, but um, it doesn't like stop the bad guys from doing the bad stuff. So I just really appreciated her like really bringing that to light. And she talks about her own reckoning with that and throughout throughout this past year in the in the pandemic. And um, I just learned so much from this episode and it was really kind of it kind of lit a fire under me. So I am so excited to share it with you. I agree completely. Um since the beginning of Lady Farmer, we've been emphasizing the importance of making more informed decisions as a consumer. And we, of course, encourage everyone to do what you can in whatever small way. Very meaningful. But what's really inspiring about this episode is Elizabeth's invitation to level up that effort and actually embrace more social activism so that individuals can come together to actually impact policy change for a more lasting transformation of the entire system. Yeah, it was a really good reminder for us in particular to keep these policy issues at the top of mind. Uh, she talks about the Pay Up Fashion campaign started about a year ago, right when everything shut down. And I'll let her tell you all about that in this episode. But as you may have noticed, if you've been following along with Lady Farmer on Instagram this week, that we are highlighting this organization in particular and donating 10% of all of our apparel sales for this week to that effort. And while we often refer to problems in the garment industry overseas, I was really surprised to learn of some of the unacceptable working conditions for garment workers in our very own country, in California in particular, which has recently resulted in the Garment Workers Protection Act. We've added links to this and all the other things referenced in this episode in the show notes. And we invite you to take a look at the multitude of resources and opportunities available to get in on the social activism aspect of this campaign. Fashion Revolution website is also a really good place to start. And in order to celebrate our in-house slow fashion lines we have two we have the essential collection by lady farmer that my mom and i designed and oversaw the production of i guess three four years ago now and um the line and toe line uh that we acquired a couple of years ago all made with materials that we love and celebrate uh recycled cotton organic hemp Lint, all these just beautiful blend. All, I mean, the different uh, garments are all made of different things. It depends on the garment. But um, we love, we're so connected to these these pieces and these lines that really represent slow fashion in the way that we believe, you know, fashion should be created. Um, so this week we've hosted a giveaway and we have actually given away uh, one of each of the line and toe garments. So congratulations to all of the winners. And if you missed out, we want to make sure you know that all of the apparel, so the line and toe collection and the essential collection still discounted through the weekend. And all of these purchases, 10% will be included in our donation to pay up fashion. So the sale and this donation period last through Sunday night, April 25th. And we're doing this because we understand that due to geopolitical issues beyond our control 
slow fashion just is more expensive. That's just how it is. And uh, there's really no other way like around that or no way to put it. But if you're paying people fairly and you're investing in good quality materials, um, then it just costs more. And so we kind of ran this, this, I guess, special this week to do what we can to make it slightly more accessible um, if possible, because we know that slow fashion isn't accessible to everyone. And, and that's a problem and not one that we know how to solve. But um, we want to do what we can periodically to help make it more accessible. Yeah, and I want to give a shout out to the talented Grace Bryan, who is the designer and creator of the line and toe line that we've been giving away this week. So get ready. Buckle your seatbelts for a fast ride and lots of information on what's happening in the sustainable fashion movement. Here's Elizabeth Klein. I have been writing about ethical and sustainable fashion for over a decade, but I've been involved in social issues related to the fashion industry since I was a college student. I was an anti-sweatshop activist as a college student, which was 20 years ago now. And then once I graduated, I sort of moved away from thinking about my clothes and where my clothes come from and why they matter. And then I came back around to it about 10 years ago when I was working on my first book, Overdressed, The Shockingly High Cost of Cheap Fashion. And what was really interesting about working on overdressed was it wasn't just me that had stopped thinking about where clothes come from and the impacts they were having on the world it was kind of this widespread cultural amnesia like no one was really thinking about where their clothes came from at that point or very few people i won't say no one and my aha moment was really just opening my closet and realizing i had over 350 items of clothes. And this was, you know, despite the fact that I, I didn't really identify as a fashionista or someone who really loved fashion, it was really just a clothes that had become so cheap that it just had become kind of a compulsive purchase. Like, why not fill your closet full of cheap fast fashion? That was just kind of like what everyone was doing. So the aha moment for me was seeing how much clothing I had accumulated and becoming curious again, you know, waking up and being like, I want to know the story of where all of these clothes came from and how it's impacting the world around me. Wow. I love what you said, cultural amnesia. That's such a yeah. great word for it. <laughs> yeah. And that kind of leads into the next question I was going to ask you, at least for me, you were one of the earlier voices in the slow fashion movement with your book. And um, since it came out before the Rana Plaza collapse in 2013 and also before the True Cost documentary in 2015, I was wondering and curious to know if you think there's been much change since then, much change in the cultural amnesia that you describe of two decades ago. There's so much to say about that. I think that one of the most interesting aspects of working on an issue for a long time and just getting older is like starting to see the issue, the cause that you're working on really in the context of history and, you know, inside of all of these other historical and like socioeconomic forces. Now let me break down what I mean by that. 
when I was in college in the late 90s and early 2000s, outsourcing, globalization, sweatshops were a huge issue in the United States. I would say they were one of the biggest social issues in the United States. Even the president, you know, Bill Clinton was talking about it when I was in high school. There was a lot of momentum to figure out how to make a globalized fashion industry responsible. So I bring that up just because I see the modern ethical and sustainable fashion movement as just the latest in a kind of repeating cycle of activism around making the fashion industry more responsible that really goes back more than a century. It's part of this ongoing struggle of making capitalism more responsible. And it's like we keep learning the lesson of what it means and what it takes to make the fashion industry more responsible. And then we forget, and then we have to do it again. I think that what's really different and unique about the movement that we've built today is one, how global it feels. And I think that is really thanks to technology and social media. Like there are people working on this issue all over the world. You know, I, I find it pretty easy to work with activists and factory owners and garment workers, whether they're in Bangladesh or Pakistan or LA. So we have all of these tools now to make the industry more fair. But back to your original question, should we get into like, have things actually changed? Yeah, Um, let's do it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm curious to how you perceive the common take on all this now is there more widespread awareness you would think so after you know kind of these big public campaigns and books and so forth but what do you see from your standpoint on this yeah I wrote a story last fall for Atmos magazine called the twilight of the ethical consumer where I really wrestled with where the ethical and sustainable fashion movement is or at least was before the pandemic because I do see a lot of awareness raising, but it it's different than consciousness raising of a prior generation or, or prior movements where a lot of times it's not building towards action, which is what we need. And even though I identify with, you know, being part of the slow fashion movement in the sense that, you know, I intentionally try not to overconsume, I repair my clothes, I wash my clothes very carefully. Like I practice all of these slower lifestyle techniques for me, especially when the pandemic hit and seeing how massively unequal the impacts were, I went back to the space of being like, we really have to address these issues on a systemic level. I think that this is happening in a lot of spaces in our society it can tip into people putting their heads in the sand and saying, you know, I'm, I'm doing something about this Mm -hmm. by not shopping a certain way or by changing my own lifestyle. When these larger systems of fast fashion are completely untouched by those decisions, Mm -hmm. I really had to confront that, you know, during the pandemic, like that my slow fashion culture, our slow fashion culture was not really changing the fast fashion system. It was still kind of continuing on, hurting people, operating in the same fundamental ways, even though we had this massive global slow fashion movement. You'll have to remind me, but there was something that happened. I remember you writing about it and reading your posts about it. There was like 
this phenomenon where there were all these orders coming over, but the brands weren't paying the factories for them because people weren't buying. Is that what was happening? Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So last March, you know, when, you know, a lot of people were in lockdown, brands were forced to close their stores. People just weren't buying clothes. It was like, some huge historic decline in apparel sales. It's like 80%, 80 to 90% drop mm-hmm. in a single month. So what the brands tried to do is, you know, they usually order their clothes several months in advance and then pay their factories back months after delivery of the clothing. So what most brands tried to do was just refuse payment to their factories and garment workers for the clothes that had already been produced for last spring and summer. One of the, you know, kind of largest examples of what I describe as like corporate theft combined with wage theft that I've ever seen. And certainly I think probably the largest example of it during the pandemic, it was $40 billion worth of orders that were either already completed or in some phase of manufacture. So that's part of what I'm saying about being forced to realize that fast fashion is still broken. It depends on this massive power imbalance between brands and their factories and then garment workers kind of at the bottom of the pile. And I started working on this campaign called Pay Up. I actually was one of the people who helped found it and organize it to get the factories paid back. And it was really successful. We got over $20 billion uh, promised back from 25 major brands back to the factories. And, you know, without that money, lots of factories would have just gone out of business without paying people for work they had already done. Is it still having to work and and bird dog this? I mean, is this still going on? Mm Mm-hmm. The pay up campaign is absolutely still targeting companies that have not paid their bills yet because it's never too late to pay back these billions of dollars. And I think that there's this perception that maybe the industry is struggling or a lot of companies can't pay their bills. And it's certainly true that some companies have gone under, but many others have returned to profitability. So you know, the companies that still owe money include TJ Maxx, Ross Dress for Less, Urban Outfitters, which owns Anthropology. There's just a lot of really big companies who owe money to their garment workers. But then the other part of the campaign is we launched a platform for systemic reform in the fashion industry. And we launched a website called payupfashion.com. And we created a roadmap with labor rights groups in Bangladesh and Sri Lanka, laying out how we are going to fix this industry moving forward out of COVID. And it's all up on the payupfashion.com website. And if you go there and you sign the petition on the homepage, you're endorsing this plan for change. And then it also sends an email to over 200 fashion executives saying, this is what our community wants in order to support garment worker rights moving forward. Wow. I think I saw that website a while back and I have signed that petition. I did not know that fashion executives got an email though. That's amazing. Yeah. Good work. Yeah. And they're listening. They're listening to us. So I think that the the window is open for a lot of big changes. There are also forces within the fashion industry who want things to mostly go back to the way they were. We have our work cut out for us for sure. It just seems so baffling to me that it's just greediness that would keep it that one way that these huge multi-conglomerate companies that are profitable just like 
can't part with their profits. It has to be more complicated than that, right? Like, I mean, it might be like complex economics that I don't understand, but I guess I'm wondering if you know anything from the other side about why it's complicated for these huge corporations to pay back their factories. Yeah, there's there's two, I would say, major underlying issues. One is that corporations have a legal responsibility to prioritize their shareholders. So part of it is just that the way our corporate culture is set up, you know, kind of mandates that they do everything in their power to protect their cash reserves, stabilize their share prices. Like I I was sitting in on earnings calls during the pandemic, just trying to understand the logic of these decisions from the other, to your point, from the other side, like what, Mm -hmm. what was going through the heads? They're not, they can't be all monsters, right? Like, (laughs) Yeah. So I think that corporations are, are really Strange, like they really, the the decisions are not based on like what's good for, I would argue what's good for workers, like, and that's been the case for a really, really long time. And that Mm -hmm. absolutely has to change. It's really like very, very focused on growth and shareholder value. But then the other piece of this that is much easier to fix is that brands have for decades now enjoyed this complete legal distance from their factories. So like, they're not technically responsible for what happens in their factories. That is a loophole that needs to be closed. And I think is feasible to close, or at least to hold brands partially responsible for what happens to their factories. Cause that's, you know, what we're seeing in California with the, the garment worker protection act, which I can talk about more, but to me, that's the fundamental problem. There's no accountability from the top to the the bottom of the supply chain. And that is like a systemic change that yes. could happen and is is addressable and looping back for a second to what you were saying about how you were becoming increasingly aware that our little individual changes weren't really having the impact on the big picture that we'd like to see. And you know, we're always telling people, you know, do what you can, you know, even the smallest action when you take responsibility for your personal consumer decisions and such. So how can we encourage people to stick with it if the larger picture really isn't changing? I think we need to change what individual action and individual responsibility Mm -hmm. means. I did a lot of research and going back into looking at social movements from, you know, the 20th century. So from like the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, and I looked at the civil rights movement and consumer activist movements like, you know, Rachel Carson's environmental movement against chemicals and Ralph Nader's consumer activist movement that was mostly focused on the auto industry, but really expanded beyond that. And all of this is in my Atmos story, The Twilight of the Ethical Consumer. But I've continued to read about these social movements. And what's really striking to me is that individual responsibility meant something different. It was not about lifestyle and consumption choices. Being individually responsible would have been being a good citizen. It would have been being engaged in your political system, in your community, in the public life of our democracy. 
So mm -hmm. even the definition of individual responsibility, I would argue has been warped and co-opted by this overarching, all-encompassing, like free market logic. Like we think about everything in terms of shopping, not where we shop, where we don't shop, starting a business to make positive social change. And as a result, over time, I think we've, in many cases, we've lost the skill and the know-how and the savvy to make change in the public space. So part of what I'm arguing for is for folks to reconnect with their civic selves. It's like this outward individual responsibility versus an inward individual responsibility, which both are important because it's hard to be outwardly individually responsible if you don't have a sense of like, you know, what you need to do. But it's kind of like, I think what you're saying is we've forgotten that part of it. I can totally see that. Yeah. If you really think about, and I'll give the conscious closet as an example, like the way that social change was framed for me in my mind prior to the pandemic is like there's your individual consumption choices that you make and then there's systemic change but really in order for systemic change to happen we even have to reframe our concept of what individual responsibility means i would argue that if we're going to kind of encourage people to be more responsible and to make changes in their everyday life, it would be more important to start with how can you get involved with your civil society in your, in your community or join a local political party or start some sort of grassroots campaign. Like there, it, it's strange to me that there's so much expectation and pressure on how people shop and, and like, yeah, not as much, you know, and, and kind of, encouraging people to get involved. That's really interesting. And um, you're presenting something that I think is really an important element of the responsible consumer evolution, I guess, or, or return, <laughs> you know, sort of circling back to being part of the process of impacting society. And it's maybe more comfortable to think that all, all it takes is our little small actions and stuff. But what I hear you saying is it might be more than that. It might be stepping out into the public yeah. arena a little more and using your voice a little more. And I also think there's a lot of caution around what you say. And there's so many things that are, can't say this because it'll offend someone or you have to kind of tiptoe around certain issues. This is something I've noticed. And it, I think it sort of impedes using your voice. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, I'll piggyback off of that. Both of you said is that I think it turns into not only I'm just going to change the way I shop, but I'm going to like point fingers and tell other people <laughs> how they should shop, which is what I think gets into yeah. what you're saying, mom, which is like, how are you supposed to tell other people how to shop? I don't know. There's obviously some value in it, but it's really interesting. I'm, I'm like really yeah. thinking about it differently right now because to Elizabeth's point, that's kind of not the conversation we should be having is like pointing fingers at each other and telling each other where and how to shop. Yeah. It's like a different conversation we need to be having. Whenever you go to these, you know, events where they're talking about sustainable fashion and the problems, it seems like there's always the person that'll stand up and say, but it's all people can afford. And so we can't take that away from them. Or they'll say, oh, but it's these jobs overseas. And I'm always feeling like, 
we should try to get beyond that because then that says like, oh, well, this is okay on, on a certain level. And with all of the outrage over social injustice and all the things that have come up in the past year, why isn't it more obvious to people and more talked about that there are a lot of problems in their very own closet? It just seems like it's, it's not in front of the discussion and it should be because it's such a huge thing that impacts people every single day. Yeah, I mean, I would say that hearing those questions, sustainable and ethical fashion events, you do kind of hear the same things over and over again. And often it's the very first question is, where do I shop? And that's part of why I eventually wrote The Conscious Closet, because, you know, it's like, man, there's so much interest in this subject. But I think for me over time, I remember when Overdress first came out, it was sort of the tail end of where you would kind of push back against that and be like, I don't know if that's where we should start the conversation. Just because you change where you shop doesn't change the fact that these fast fashion companies still exist yeah. and that workers are still being exploited in this supply chain. And then when people bring up like the cost, like instead of unpacking why we have why? so much inequality, you know, yeah. in the first place, <laughs> like why, why do we accept the existence of poor people and rich people to the degree yeah. that we, that they're, you know, all these issues are so interconnected, but I really do think over the last 10 years, we've seen this huge shift towards more people expressing their values through the way they consume. And it's become so normalized to the point where now you've got people judging each other for where they shop, like, or judging each other because they participate in Black Friday, or they're not like zero waste, or they're not vegan. Mm -hmm. It worries me because I think that this has started to change, but it means that we're kind of leaving these wider systems intact. And there's not as much kind of pressure or encouragement on people to like get involved in tackling the root causes of these problems yeah they just want to tackle each other yeah <laughs> yeah I think that's absolutely true and it also makes me wonder and this is not a very positive outlook but you know talk me down is it just too big I mean we can all make our individual consumer decisions but let's just say for example everyone suddenly stopped buying fast fashion or, you know, they only picked companies that were 100% transparent and ethical and sustainable, all those things, our economic system wouldn't be able to handle it. So many things would come crashing down if it happened suddenly. Do you think? I just don't think that that is a realistic. That's no, not going to happen. It's definitely not. <laughs> if, it, if it was going to happen, it would have already happened. I would say the ethical consumer paradigm that believes what you're suggesting, which is that we are going to slowly over time or quickly shift society only to ethical and sustainable companies and that all the bad companies will go away. That's just not how the world works. And in fact, I think that ultimately thinking that way is kind of feeding into the inequality and the fundamental kind of problems with our culture. Like, I think that what's happening in ethical and sustainable fashion is that consumers who are highly educated, more well off, are creating this like bubble of, you know, responsibly produced 
stuff. And then the rest of the world is just continuing to spin. We just need to ask ourselves more, what is possible if we come at this from a different direction? Like what if we just regulate bad companies? Like what if we make it harder for companies to do bad? That's like where we've lost our way. There's so many tools that are very direct that can prevent companies from causing harm. Like, I feel like we've tried this approach of like only creating companies that do good, but it doesn't stop all of the economic and and social forces that push the rest of the industry towards growing, accumulating profits, only serving their shareholders. It doesn't really like touch those bigger systems. So how can we touch those systems? I know it's a lot of different things and I know like policy is a part of it, but how can the consumer really directly communicate with these big corporations besides just like boycotting them or whatever? Yeah, I think that there's kind of two main ways to look at it. One is absolutely like making big changes on the policy and regulatory and legal level. And I'll come back to how citizens can influence that process. And then the second part of it is thinking like a consumer activist. I talk about this in my Atmos story. And if you know that a company is doing something bad, it is, I think, more powerful rather than shifting your money to hold that company directly accountable for the harm they're causing. And it's most powerful when you organize with other people to do that. So the pay up campaign is a good example of that. Instead of seeing, okay, all these companies robbed their factories. So I'm going to go buy sustainable fashion. That's not what we did. We went to the companies directly and we said, here's what you owe, pay it. You know, we did it with a lot of strategy, but honestly, it was quite easy with social media Mm. to hold these companies accountable. So that's like one tool that we always have at our disposable. Hold the companies that are doing harm directly accountable to us. That's such a small but profound shift in the way we think about these issues. I give examples in the story like Everlane was accused of union busting at the beginning of the pandemic. And the ethical consumer response would be like, oh, I don't shop at Everlane. Right. This doesn't change the fact that Everlane was creating a culture that was antagonistic to collective bargaining. The more powerful response would be to hold Everlane accountable and say, no, we want... Yeah. It's kind of like, too, just general cancel culture. Like, okay, saying something's canceled, you can do that, but then what are they going to do? Like, keep doing their horrible thing, or are you going to, like, have a conversation with them? You know? For another example, this is, again, a theoretical thing that's too drastic to actually be realistic. But, for instance, like, you might identify a company and say, I don't want to buy clothes with plastic in anymore. I don't want to buy synthetics. The microfibers are terrible. It's bad for my health. So this company and that company and that company are off my list. And enough people do that. And they respond by saying, oh, we're working on it. This, you know, we have a program Mm -hmm. by 2025, Mm -hmm. we're going to be all plastic free. And so then people kind of simmer down and even they even sort of gravitate towards those companies because they're at least they're trying. But in the meantime, you know, it's changed so slow. We just have to accept that it's slow and this is a giant thing and the wheels are going to turn very slowly. Or do we just stand up and say, no, I don't want to wear plastic anymore. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to do it. That is such a great way to think about it. We are in a place of just accepting when we should be in a place of saying no. These problems don't 
have to take a long time to solve. But that's where I'll go back to the importance of grassroots organizing and grassroots campaigns. So this is this is something that I feel like I've learned a lot about over the past year. I feel like it's a, it's also like a definitely more of a problem with liberals and progressives. We often accept the slow, vague, non-committal version of change. And I don't really understand entirely how we got to this place. Because in order for conversations to really, really change, you do have to organize. You have to make demands. And those demands have to be strong and clear and have a deadline or they will never, ever, ever happen. And I think the question for the ethical and sustainable fashion community is if we don't want plastic clothing to be a thing, who else do we think is going to advance that platform but us? We are the only ones who can get that done. So what would that look like? You know, would that be part of an existing nonprofit that goes and asks the government to make these changes? Because that goes back to like what we were saying earlier about policy and change on the government level. I think a lot of times people are like, I don't understand policy, Yeah, but you don't need to. It's like, I think the Black Lives Matter movement kind of is a great example of this. Like you can make these broad demands that change the conversation and, you know, you can petition the government and say, we want these things to be paid attention to. And it starts to shift the conversation among elected leaders. Like it's, it's more like our community's job to take the issues to the government, right? They're not going to just mm-hmm. sit there and be like, you know what I should do today is like regulate polyester. They're not thinking about it. Yeah. We are thinking about it. So it's like, we have a responsibility to communicate that to our elected leaders. Yeah. You've talked about the pay up campaign and you referenced the garment policy in California. Is that related to this? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know anything about that. Okay. Yeah. About that. This is a good example of where our community can get behind systemic reform. Like right now, you know, it doesn't, it's not theoretical. Like this is happening right now. So in California, this bill called SB 62, the Garment Worker Protection Act, is moving through the assembly this year. And the bill was sort of originated from a community-based garment worker organization called the Garment Worker Center. So it's like kind of emanating from what garment workers want for the industry. And the other thing to know about the bill before I explain what it hopes to accomplish is that in LA, workers are earning far less than the minimum wage. Like some workers are earning between like three and $5 an hour in California in the 21st century. So in some cases, the conditions in Los Angeles factories are actually worse than in Asia, which is, you know, in places like Bangladesh that we really closely associate with sweatshops. Like we have some of the worst sweatshops in our own backyard in the United States. So this goes back to what we were saying earlier about why does this happen? Is it just greed? And I would argue, and the bill kind of frames the issue differently, which is that what's happened is brands aren't responsible for what happens in factories. So, you know, a fast fashion company like Ross or Forever 21 or TJ Maxx, which does make its own clothes, people don't realize that, will go to a factory and pay the factory so little money for the orders 
that the factory can't afford to pay minimum wage. So the Garment Worker Protection Act is essentially trying to change that paradigm, and it will require factories to pay minimum wage, <laughs> which... Wow, breakthrough. Yeah, wow. I think the more significant aspects of this bill is that if wage theft does continue to occur in the factories, so if it still comes out that people are not being paid the minimum wage, the brands will be held partly responsible. So that is the like truly game-changing part of this bill. And what does that look like? Fines or something? It's a really good question. I know that it goes through, there's basically like a system in California that investigates and quantifies wage them. You know, a worker can bring a claim and then from there, the city would go back to the parties involved and say, here's how much you owe. Here's how much the factory owner owes. Here, here's how much the brand owes. Raw Stress for Less, for example, owes garment workers in Los Angeles like hundreds of thousands of dollars that it just got away without paying and taxpayers had to pay it. <laughs> wow. Oh my God. Yeah. But anyway, if if you want to support the Garment Worker Protection Act, it's not just something that people in California should support. We really need the entire ethical and sustainable fashion community to get behind it. One, because made in America clothes are sold everywhere. So as a consumer, you want to know when you're buying that, that it's made in a factory where people are paid fairly. So you can either go to tinyurl.com backslash support. G-W-P-A, or much easier, whenever you sign the petition on the homepage of payupfashion.com, if you're a California resident, we will share your signature with the Garment Worker Center. And so you're supporting the bill anyway. This is a way that consumers can move beyond just their own consumer decisions to really get out there and step up and be a voice for change that's actually happening. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, I see a lot of debate on social media about like slacktivism, but like signing a petition really is, we have to collect public support to show that there is political will for this cause. So it actually is really important to sign your name. Well, we're going to shift gears a little bit here. And could you talk to us about your take on the connection between good dirt and slow fashion or... Just speak on what good dirt means to you, either literally or metaphorically. When I look at the way that brands talk about sustainability, it's often in this very abstracted, universal way. You know, how many gallons of water are we saving or how many shirts are we recycling? And it doesn't ever mention specific places or processes it's just kind of like detached, you know, and I think kind of by design, it kind of reinforces this estrangement we have from our clothes, which is why I think that what you guys are doing is so important because it reframes the conversation about sustainability in the environment, in, you know, the literal ground, the roots of the industry. It makes people think about where their clothes come from, like going all the way back to the beginning. And it makes sure that we are constantly thinking about sustainability in systemic ways instead of as this like abstract system that we can like tinker with. You know what I mean? 
the way the fashion industry talks about sustainability is somehow very mechanical and like your work is like a reminder that it's organic and everything that we buy comes from not just a natural resource which still sounds very like abstracted it comes from a field or a farm there's a person that was likely in that field or farm. I mean, even with fossil fuel, you know, we are so abstracted from that process too. So yeah, I know that was a really long answer, but I think it's such an important framing tool. Yeah. But yeah, you know, just for someone to understand that the chemicals that went in to growing that cotton or whatever, you don't only need to worry about, oh, is it still in my clothes? Am I wearing it on my skin? But how did that affect the very soil that supports all life on earth? You know, how, how did Yeah, it... and then the farm next door that's growing your food yeah. if those chemicals are on there. And, the, you know, the worker that worked the land, as you said, the, the human being that was involved mm-hmm. in that. And in, in some places it has the average life expectancy of like 35 years old because they're going to get cancer from the chemicals. I mean, all, the, all this kind of thing mm-hmm. we feel like is really directly related to good dirt and slow fashion. So thank you. Elizabeth, before we let you go, do you have any upcoming projects or things that you're working on right now? And then also more ways than even you've named here for people to specifically get involved. We'll link those links that you mentioned before in the show notes. I would say that just following along either uh, my account or Pay Up Fashion or Remake, we all kind of work together. This year, my work is going to be heavily kind of oriented towards making sure that the ethical and sustainable fashion community knows about all of the systemic change ideas that I'm aware of in, in the in the space of like labor rights. So there's a lot, there's going to be a wave of proposals is how I'll put it. And we will be using Instagram mostly to like keep people involved. And that's pay up fashion on Instagram? Yep, the yeah. And then my, my Instagram is Elizabeth L. Klein. Okay, so the other thing is that I'm just gonna give an example. I'm working on labor rights. You guys are working on soil health. There are people working on textile waste. There are people working on, you know, systemic racism. Like there's a lot going on in the space. And I just encourage people, if there's an issue that you feel like needs more attention to figure it out, like figure out what, what to do about it. Like it's not as challenging as you might think. Like I'll give, I'll give an example. I wrote the story for Patagonia a few months ago about greenwashing. And in it, I said, you know, I think one of the problems in the United States is that the Federal Trade Commission doesn't actually enforce the rules we have about deceptive marketing around sustainability. We have rules. They just really aren't that enforced. Like, I I don't know about you guys, but every time I'm on social media, it's just like a deluge of like Mm -hmm. this pair of underwear, like, solves climate change and like yeah it's just, it's really bad right so in the story i was just like it interviewed some people who work in policy and they were like you know what really needs to be done is the ftc needs to do its job we need to update these green guides and a couple of brands and people created a coalition and they are going to try to get the green guides updated this year cool so they just took this idea and 
are now campaigning around it. And I'm seeing the same thing happen with textile waste too. Like we really do have the power to change the conversation on these issues. And sometimes it's really just as easy as like getting together with a couple of other people coming up with some goals and, you know, either creating a petition or writing to your elected leaders. Just those few mm-hmm. steps mm-hmm. can move the conversation on some of these issues a long way. Yeah. I don't think we can hear that like too much. We need to constantly be reminded of that because it's so easy to feel so small and and it doesn't matter, you know. I think also looking to other social movements that have been successful or like making a lot of progress. Like I pay really close attention to everything going on in the Black Lives Matter movement and what they're doing with the BREATHE Act. There's a lot of different branches across the United States and across the world now. But, you know, thanks to the internet, if you want to figure out how a social movement works or how people organize to accomplish something, I promise, like, I'll I'll sometimes just sit down and be like, wait, if I want to get a bill passed, like, how does that work? You really can figure out how to do this stuff is what I'm trying to say. Gosh, I feel like I just want to wake people up to just what's in their closet. You know, I just feel like there's so much tiptoeing around that. Can I actually push back on that a little bit? I actually think that... We have a huge movement. I thought before the pandemic that expanding the ranks should be the goal, but we have a lot of people on our team. I think that it's just up to us now to organize to make these changes. Yeah, you mean go from theory to action, move beyond awareness. Yes, that makes sense. Okay. You know, it makes me feel better to say that you think there is a lot of awareness. There's a tremendous amount of awareness. I would say more than I've seen in my lifetime. Yeah. It's gotten to the point where you bring it up and it's not like the person hasn't heard of it before, which when we started, I felt like every time we were like sustainable fashion, people were like, what's that? But that's not the case anymore. Like people at least have heard of it. Yeah. Moving from theory to action is a good way to put it. It, It's that whatever that quote that says we're the ones we've been waiting for. It's up to us. There's so many people in this space now who are experts. I mean, deeply, deeply knowledgeable about fashion systems, fiber systems. It is really on us to change this industry. Yeah. And to kind of connect those dots too. Maybe what we've been doing is all kind of in our own corners, like figuring it out, but maybe we're in this phase of like you were saying, kind of coalition forming and yeah. In wrapping up, I know our time is almost over, but what is it that you most want people to understand about the work that you do, if you could leave our audience with your biggest message. It's hard for me to really add any more than what we've already gone over. You know, I've spent a lot of time over the last 10 years thinking about ethical and sustainable fashion. And I am at this point now where I am trying to figure out how social change happens and doing my part to make that happen is still sort of a mystery to me, but I feel confident that I can figure this out and that the rest of the community can figure it out. I think we can do it too. It's really easy to feel bogged down by the scope of the issues, but. I I mean, I'll tell one, one last story if it's okay. So in addition to the pandemic kind of making me be like, wait, Are we really addressing these underlying causes with the way we've structured our movement? Another thing that started to shift my thinking was 2019, I worked on this story about organic cotton farmers in West Texas for Another Tomorrow, which is this beautiful, sustainable fashion brand that also has this beautiful online magazine. And 
When I was writing that story about the organic cotton farmers, I found out that a kind of big part of the origins or of organic food and fiber started with these farmers in West Texas. There were people all over the United States working to get organic standards off the ground, but some of them actually just lived in West Texas. And what was really inspiring to me is that they saw this huge shift to industrial farming happening and they wanted to create a different system that worked better for farmers in terms of pricing, but also for the land. And, you know, they understood how all those things went together. So what did they do? They started organizing with farmers all across the United States and they helped develop the organic certifications that the USDA uses and that became adopted globally. So I was kind of floored by that. You're just, you know, regular everyday people who know their subject really well, took it upon themselves to make this huge, huge change that, you know, still impacts us in our everyday lives. And I think that that shifted my thinking a lot, just meeting people who were like, why wouldn't I get together with other people and try to like, come up with a new standard or new law or whatever it is. So it it kind of started to shift my thinking. I was like, wow, they're you know, you you really can do this. Like everyday citizens really can change the rules of society. And in fact, I think that we have an obligation to do so. So we hope you enjoyed this episode and that you learned something. If you did learn something and you did enjoy it, please consider sharing this with a friend posting it to social media sharing it far and wide um usually I say that because I want people to know about the good dirt and follow the good dirt and I do but particularly this episode I think that Elizabeth's message is so important and I just I really just want to spread it as wide as possible so if you could give it a share um then more people will know and we can get in front of this thing and make a real difference and if you're not already please follow us on Instagram at we are Lady Farmer and visit our website at ladyfarmer.com. Also, if you are a member of our online community, The Almanac, you will find that we have created an entire space on the platform. It's actually under a topic and it's titled Social Activism. And it's a place for you to post, share, and process anything related to, to these issues or really any social activism issues. But I think in this space, it'll probably skew more sustainable fashion, ethical fashion, um, ethical issues around agriculture, etc. Um, so feel free to ask questions there and share any resources and, and we'd love to keep the conversation going there as well. Thanks everybody. We'll see you next week. Yeah, we'll see you next week on the good dirt. Bye.